The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Whatever your goals are, you have to ask yourself if you truly want to do that. Like You have to ask yourself that first. I've talked people out of plenty of things, believe it or not, because I think that if you don't come at it with the right perspective and with the right amount of dedication, then it probably won't work out for you. If you've made the choice to do something, be it becoming a fighter pilot or choosing any other endeavor, um, you have to then be dedicated and you have to be willing to, to make the hard choices. I've known plenty of people who, for one reason or another, had the right intentions, put in max effort, and it still didn't happen. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Bobbitt. He's a Marine F-35 fighter pilot. I think you're going to enjoy listening to his episode. He has quite a few accomplishments. It makes me feel lazy. But before we get into the episode with Bobbitt, I want to talk about the podcast in and of itself. It's been really cool to learn about podcasting, to grow the podcast. It's cool that people listen to it. I'm always surprised by that. This week, I really think points out to me of why I do this. And... Bob and I recorded this back in July. I failed to record an intro, so I'm recording this intro on Wednesday, September 20th. In the news this week, there's been a lot of chatter about an F-35 that flew away by itself when its pilots ejected, so that, that has garnered a lot of national attention. It did not coincide or intentionally coincide with the release of this episode. But one thing I've been working on with the podcast is, is giving back and how can we make life better for veterans, how can we help people out. One of those aspects is the Guns Gear Memorial Foundation. I, I was excited to join in at their golf tournament last year and now join the board. We have their annual golf tournament coming up on August 23rd in Sumter, South Carolina. So if you want to join in, if you like playing golf and helping veterans and getting youth involved in aviation, gunsgearin.com is where you want to go. But Croc is the president of the board, and he asked me to record just a simple little promo for the golf tournament and as well as some of the things that the foundation is doing i asked for a couple recent highlights of veterans that the foundation has helped out he sent over lieutenant colonel andrew simple jack mettler he was a marine f-18 pilot that was killed on august 25th just a few weeks ago in miramar when his hornet crashed simple jack had multiple combat deployments underneath his belt he was a father of three and he'd been married to his wife nancy for over 10 years when I got Simple Jack's obituary, I saw that he grew up in Marietta, Georgia, just north of where I grew up, attended Georgia Tech, and graduated in 2007. So we were at Georgia Tech the exact same years. We graduated. We probably did our joint commissioning if he graduated in May of 2007 together. So you see these parallels and all these things kind of coming together. The foundation was able to step in and help Simple Jack's family out right away from helping with counseling and paying for expenses things that you don't often think about that unfortunately i've learned as well as watched happen over my career bank accounts get frozen you're dealing with absolutely the worst 
possible imaginable thing in your life and something as simple as your bank account being frozen that can't be unfrozen without going to probate or dealing with lawyers adds a tremendous amount of stress to a family. So the foundation is able to step in and help in scenarios like that. So if you're interested in giving back and helping out our veterans in need in a variety of ways, Guns Garen provides a great avenue to do that. And you can do monthly, you can do one-time donations, you can join into the golf tournament, etc. And then a second pillar is helping youth get involved in aviation. So it's a great cause. And honestly, when these parallels and these stories kind of weave the across one another. Like I never would have met Bobbitt had I not done this podcast. I never would have probably been involved in guns Garen had I not done this podcast. So for me, it's very rewarding to hear these stories, to capture these stories, and then to be able to get back and, and help out in some small way, hopefully. Thank you to everyone who's left ratings and reviews who follow the show over on Apple podcasts and Spotify. Following the show is a big deal too. So that helps the algorithm show people might be interested in this this podcast and listening in thanks to all my patreon supporters for the podcast hopefully they're enjoying the there i was stories if you're interested in those those live on patreon as well as apple and spotify but patreon is the best way to go about that i think that is a long enough intro for today check out the newsletter check out the new lowdown weekly podcast that comes out on this channel as well which talks a lot about the things going on in the newsletter you're liking those or there's a topic you want to see in those send me an email you can find that over on the africanpodcast.com via the contact section you can fire fire meshes fire message to me and uh we'll get rolling with that oh yeah we got a blog over there too so with that being said let's jump into the podcast Seat tide, Altera zero eyes we're clear for takeoff clear for the airspace fiber check two Bob, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. Like I was thinking earlier, I think you, the last Marine I had on the podcast, he was like chucking grenades as the Viet Cong had overrun their fob. Um, so, I mean, there's a little bit to live up to, but just I'm looking at your bio, MIT aerospace engineering, F-35, F-35 demo pilot. It's quite the resume, so I know it's going to be impressive uh, just to chat with you. Thanks for joining me. And I just kind of gave a little bit of the highlight, but can you give me just a little bit deeper than a surface level bio of who you are and what you're doing today? Uh, Rain, let me start off by saying uh, thanks. Appreciate being here. This is a uh, it's an honor to be on this podcast. You've had some, uh, as you already alluded to, you've had some really accomplished folks who have seen and done a lot on here. So um, let's just say that not sure if I'll live up to that, but <laughs> I'll do my best uh, how I can. A um, little bit about myself. So relatively non-standard kind of way to enter into what I've done. Uh, my parents are both diplomats, so grew up overseas traveling a lot. I then went to a, um, I'd always wanted to be a Navy jet pilot, believe it or not. I figured, you know, want to fly fighters and what's the opportunity to get closest to where we actually are in combat. And I was like, I'll fly off of Navy aircraft carriers. And then I went to a high school that was Marine Corps themed and supporting school. We had drill instructors, um, much like the previous <laughs> guest you had. Uh, my drill instructor in high school was a veteran of Quezon and had yeah. two Purple Hearts. So uh, the bar bar was set high for expectations. And um, my experience with the Marine Corps in 
folks who are around the Marines are you either kind of fall in love with the Marine Corps or um, you at your core feel the opposite. And uh, for me, it was done. I, I learned that Marines had jets and that kind of set me on that path to becoming a Marine jet pilot. Um, I'll graduate from there. I'll be fortunate in that I get into MIT and I, I, I'll bring it up to me. It's super important. Um, MIT like kicks my ass. Um, looks good on a resume. Sounds good. It's, it's fun to talk about it now. There's a diploma somewhere, uh, but that really truly uh, brought me down to a very base level of what I thought I was capable of. And it was my first introduction to being around folks who are more talented than I. Um, and I was doing my best to keep up. I'll make it through there with some valuable lessons learned. And then I'll end up going through OCS, TBS, getting commissioned in 2012. Um, due to a little bit of a issue at OCS, uh, once again, these real like life learning moments for me, I guess they happened a little bit early. I'll be a pretty bad heat casualty at OCS. What is a heat um, casualty? Heat casualty. So, um, in OCS and in recruit training for the Marines, it's actually a non rare occurrence where due to the training locations for all Marine officers, it's Quantico, Virginia. And then for the enlisted side of the house, it's Paris Island down here in South Carolina or it's Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. Uh, temperatures get very high during those summer courses. And here on the East Coast, relative humidity, wet bulb temps, it's a pretty brutal environment to train in. And they'll have heat casualties. So folks who either have heat exhaustion and in some of the more severe cases, heat stroke. So when I was going through OCS, I will be doing a course and talk to my buddies and we're like, Hey, we're not going to drink water out of our canteen because it'll take too long to get to the canteen. Like I got to just like keep running and uh, spoiler alert. I should have <laughs> drank water. Uh, it right. did not pan out well because if you collapse a hundred yards from the end, you don't finish it. Um, oh so gosh. the extra 30 seconds probably would have been all right. Um, I'll have a very high core temp, uh, scary high. And I'll end up having to come back from that, deal with some stuff, and I'll finish those. Yes, and, and that is only important because when I go to commission, I've done ROTC, and the Marine Corps for a long time has had a aviation guarantee, which the other services really don't. So if you're becoming a Marine Corps officer, and kind of regardless of the ascension program you go through, there's opportunities for you to get that aviation guarantee that says, hey, as long as you take the ASTV, and they may have changed the name on it now, but the Navy and Marine Corps Aviation Standard Test Battery, if you took the test and you got a high enough score, they were like, sweet, you will get yourself a seat at flight school, no matter what. When I went to route my commissioning package, I had to route the aviation guarantee with it. And lo and behold, medical goes with it. And they came back and they said, you were a heat casualty. Uh, you need to get a waiver from NAMI in order to continue with your package. So I was staring down the barrel of either delaying my commissioning or just not having the aviation guarantee. So it's like my life up until that point, it's going to be a fighter pilot. Things are working right. or a pilot, really. Uh, things are working out. And then I learned spring of my senior year, like, well, that's gone. Time to 
continue forward and see what happens. So when I got to TBS, rather than 90 of my peers, we had a company of about 250. 90 of them had aviation contracts right off the bat. I was with Gen Pop and Gen Pop. other other dudes who go to TBS, you show up and you're competing from day one to get your MOS. And TBS, that kind of special thing the Marine Corps does, not sure if you've talked to anyone. Actually, kind of uh, t- what, what is TBS? Was, cool. Uh, TBS is, it, is... Yeah, I was like, what, is it, what does it stand for? It stands for the basic school, okay. believe it or not. And classic to the Marine Corps ethos. It's every Marine's a rifleman. Every Marine Corps officer is a provisional rifle platoon commander. So Marines show up, they're commissioned. You're all second lieutenants, come from all different walks of life, all different assessment programs. And then when you arrive at TBS, it is about seven months of some schoolwork, prac apps, and then field training. About every two weeks, you start this cycle where you'll come back into garrison, you'll do two weeks of classes and sand table exercises, leadership courses, you name it. And then you'll go out to the field for about five days and you kind of continue this cycle throughout. And there's peer evaluations where you're evaluating the people in your squad and in your platoon. You go through different leadership builds as you're doing it. You get trained on different weapon systems. And ultimately, the whole point of it is to basically be given a score and have everyone rack and stacked across your company. And then the Marine Corps also has a unique feature where they want to really spread out talent. So let's use the example of 300 folks, even though we were 250. They take the first hundred, the second hundred, the third hundred, put them into columns. They ask the first guy, top dog, what do you want? And he's basically, he or she is going to get their desired MOS. Um, The second person they ask is the person at that next column. So it's actually the 101st person. And then it's the 201st person. So they go through it that way. So. Uh, worst place for you to be is actually like person number 100 because you were top third, but you're going to go after. Yeah, you're going to be almost at the tail end of the company. Um, so anyway, I showed up to that, showed up to having to compete. Um, test scores were good. I was confident, uh, but I had to hang over me the whole time. It was like I couldn't show up. <laughs> we had aviation contracts at TBS and they were oftentimes referred to kind of disparagingly by other Marines as a uh, fig max for F it got my air contract. <laughs> Cause the dudes would go to the field and they'd just be sitting there with their packs. They'd just be eating snacks. You know, the, the guys who want right. infantry or tanks or artillery are like digging in, get being real serious about it. And the air guys are just <laughs> like, Hey, I'm going to Pensacola in seven months, man. Like this is real cool and all, but I know where I'm going. So, uh, I couldn't be one of those. Not, not, like to think I wouldn't have been, but right. I couldn't be. And so had to compete, got my air contract again. Here we go. That's awesome. Uh, showed up to flight school. Uh, when I was in flight school, went through kind of the standard Navy Marine Corps flight program, API into primary, primary flight T6s, gets to compete for which aircraft you want. Out of there, they do selections on a weekly basis, ended up selecting jets, um, which was awesome. Ended up going to Meridian in Mississippi, which is actually down the road from Columbus. Yeah, beautiful Meridian. There we go. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, a jewel (laughs) of the American Southeast. And while we're in Meridian, I guess another funny kind of anecdote I have is while I was there, we had a high ranking officer in charge of training show up. 
a um, admiral type. And we got all the students there and all the instructors and gave a spiel that he opened up the floor for questions. And I had known since about late high school to college that I actually wanted to fly the F-35. Like I'd seen the press on it, 2008, like flight performance, uh, the X-35, like everything. I was just like, this is what I want to fly. I had stickers on it on my college laptop. And we get to Meridian and this Admiral's talking to us and he says, all right, floor's open for questions. And one of the first questions came from a, a fellow Marine. And this Marine was like, you know, hey, sir, um, I'd like to fly F-35s. Is there like a timeline on when that's going to show up or when that's going to happen? And he was basically told, like, secure yourself, sit down, shut up. You better get ready to fly a Hornet or a Harrier because that's what you're going to fly. Like, I don't want to hear about F-35 questions for the rest of this, you know, Q&A. So that was... Yeah, I was like, okay, uh, thanks. I was like, hey, thanks for asking, man. Uh, I have no further questions. Um, and then lo and behold, uh, less than six months later, uh, the first F-35 guy actually selected out of our sister squadron in Kingsville, Texas. And then we had a guy select F-35, Marine, um, and Meridian as well. So it's like within my timeline, just in front of me, the kind of gate opened and there was no warning on our side of the house. It just happened one day. And even while I was there, it was on the dream sheet eventually, but I'm sure Air Force does it in a similar fashion that y'all learn when your class all receive your selections. Um, is it like that? Like you guys all it's, find well, out I'll at one say, time? Uh, definitely a couple of uh, themes like that. But to, to start with that piece, it definitely... You, you have no idea when what's going to be in the drop and the way it works. There's Columbus Air Force Base, Vance Air Force Base, Laughlin, Injep at Shepherd's kind of a little different beast. But uh, I'm probably what well, I'm forgetting one of them, I'm sure. Whatever. But, you know, so those drops all happen. They all coincide. The graduations, assignment nights, they all coincide with one another, more or less. There are some changes as the Air Force is experimenting with different types of pilot training. Let's go back to like when I was in pilot training. So all those would coincide. You know, there might be 100 students that are graduating across all those bases at once. Well, there's going to be 100 assignments that go into it. And each base gets divvied out those assignments. There is some swapping that occur that can occur between flight commanders. So the captain or the major who's in charge of your pilot training class, your flight, they can do some one-off trades like, yeah, Bob, he really wanted an F-35, and there's another guy, and he got a Viper, or he's going to get a Viper, and there's someone at Vance who really wants, he's number one in the class and really wants a Viper. This, his dad flew it, that's all he wants to fly, but he's going to get an F-35. They can do some of those swaps, but you have no, like, say. And the funny piece, too, what you mentioned is, like, you know, six months out, the Admiral's like, don't even talk about it. Just how fast things can change. It feels like today that's even more so. Like your time frame going through pilot training, how rapidly the pendulum it seems to swing from extremes. It does it, it you know, I'm not there in pilot training in the Air Force anymore, but all these things are happening really fast. And if you look at even like a more of a strategic level, like what's happening in the Air Force, like, mm, I don't know, maybe March time frame, it was just like, hey, we're closing Kadena. All F-15s are coming off the island, and now we're going to start doing – you know, these theater security packages uh, with Raptors and F-35s to Kadena. 
But, you know, just for, I mean, Kadena's been around with F-15 since the late 70s. And it was just like overnight, hey, it's done. All those things are happening. It seems like a fairly increased frequency and, and faster pace than it was happening before. So I think moral of the story, as I ramble on, is right place, right time, right qualifications. And there is a a decent amount of luck in being in that right place where like, yep, we're going to start dropping F-35. So that's interesting. I want to jump back to just a little bit. Um, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, like you obviously going through the P school and then to TBS with having the heat stroke or heat, uh, heat event, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Heat, it heat funny, exhaustion. Heat exhaustion. Heat, that's heat that's exhaustion. in my book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because dude, like that's the other piece. Uh, until you have your wings, like it's always a jeopardy. And I don't, I'm sure the Marine Corps is the same way. Like if you had a heat, uh, heat exhaustion now, wearing your wings, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal. Like, you're just going to get some medical attention. It's going to be annotated. But, like, once you're full a full-up round, you're going to be flying again. Until you have your wings, like, don't get knocked out. Like, don't pass out. Like, those things, uh, there's – I got a couple buddies from various squadrons in life who had a concussion. They got knocked out skiing or man, fell down a set of stairs, whatever it might be. But they sat for two years waiting to clear. And then there was, I don't know if you're going to be flying. They had their wings already. You don't have your wings. Like, Air Force for sure is like, ah, next. We'll just go to the next person who doesn't have a head injury that we have to worry about. So, be spicy, man. It's tough. Yeah. got to get those wings first. You do. And and I guess I anchor, anchoring too much on the, the early stuff. But having done the air show circuit, you end up talking, as you did, to a lot of folks who are aspirants and want to do it. And yeah. Uh, one of the big things I tell them is the the luck piece and the timing piece, like you mentioned, where you could be the top dog of your class and the top Marines, when I was going through early training, um, there was what we called like the Osprey draft and the Marine Corps, we don't end up in classes as the Air Force does. It's done on a week by week basis based on who completed across the bases. And so you had your top guys going Ospreys and it, it didn't matter what they wanted that's what the numbers and the aircraft that were available were. So I showed up in time for a jet selection period to start, which ended up being a jet draft. And so for a few months before me, several months after, everyone was getting jets if they had high enough scores. Um, F-35, that opened up just a few months before I showed up. If I'd shown up earlier, if I hadn't yeah. gone IRR post-college, like it never would have happened. So it's complete kind of luck in that regard. And then... Um, get selected F-35s super after a period of time. Uh, even that was kind of a struggle. I, I'm proud to say that as a Marine pilot who's flown on the boat, I have the highest number of traps you can get and not be a carrier qual pilot, if you will. Like I, I never flew the Hornet. I've only flown the F-35. Uh, I have 19 traps and we used to go to the boat. Um, it actually has been taken out of naval flight school which well say so, because you so you did those traps in the t-45 as part of correct like do meridian you're flying the t-45 and then they put a carrier off in the gulf of mexico right and you go down there and yep did it uh did it off the coast of jacksonville both times and we we used to go on the t-45 okay. train up for it and your first time going out there an instructor would be leading you and there'd be three students flying off their wing and he gets you into the pattern and he's like good luck so you're young buck uh flying these jets and you see the carrier for the first time and you're like holy cow like i'm gonna land on that 
uh, nerves are high. Yeah, um, I bet. <laughs> nothing, nothing could, no simulator could prepare you for how carriers feel, frankly. Um, and I'm doing my traps and I'm not doing very well. Go out the second day and then I get down to the, the last trap. And for us, it's a mixture of GPA because each pass is graded, much like your Navy guests have mentioned. It's a yeah. mixture of GPA and it's a mixture of boarding rate. And so I'm keeping track on my little leeboard card. And I'm like, man, I think, uh, I think I'm getting close here. They think I really need this one. And I fly past, I have a boulder where the hook does not hit the appropriate position. And basically you go to mill and you take it around again. And my paddles is like, Hey, your signal is divert like pigeons back to home base. So, uh, first time failed to boat at nine traps. <laughs> Second time went out and you only get two shots at it. If you, if you did well enough and it wasn't egregious, you get two shots. So the second time I went out, got my 10 traps, but I have a special place in my heart for 19 trap, uh, F-35B pilots because we're yeah. few and far between, <laughs> barely made it there. You need a patch. So, all right, I want to break. So you have to do 10 landings or successful landings, 10 traps yep. to use a Navy term. But if you, you don't do that, right? So you did nine, they send you away. And then I don't know what, after a period of time, you come back to the boat like the next day or something oh. like that to try and get, no, it's like, like 45 redo, day penalty lap. Redo that phase. Boats only show up about once a quarter or less. So it was go back to the squadron, continue training in other events. I had, I cannot recall if that was the last thing I had or not. Uh, I may have stood a ton of duty. And then next class, they started grooming to go to the ship. You then I had to do all the workups again, all the FCLPs, field carrier landing practice, uh, everything all over again, which was good. I needed it and kind of got my second swing at the bat. But that story is kind of important in and of itself because um, a high stress mark. And for us, I guess for me and like my cohort, I always thought of that as like a real seminal moment in our aviation training, even, even knowing that some of us were going to fly a carrier and some of us were going to fly hopefully F-35, like not all of us are going to be Hornet pilots and not all Hornet pilots are going to be boat squadrons and deploy on ships. Um, it's always kind of been the one big difference, I'd say, between Naval and Air Force aviation is we operate off ships. And Yeah, I got a big runway. That's all I need. <laughs> yeah, it's something. And um, yeah. <laughs> it, it also, besides being a serious confidence building exercise, it gave us a lot of single seat pilot and command time, a lot of time where you're alone in your aircraft, having to deal with situations and rise to that level of stress and the expectations placed upon you. And for reasons far above my pay grade, um, the boat was actually removed from the Naval Aviation Training Pipeline uh, a while back. And we've seen the effects of that where I am now as an instructor, um, just because the young pilots, they, they don't, they don't have kind of that trial by fire and that level yeah. of solo experience. I think we've talked about on the bro chats, Bender's specifically talked about because Bender's flying the F 35. There's different, um, they always like there, there's different periods of time where things get removed from the syllabus and pilot training. Like when I was going through T sixes, one of the things you had to do was emergency landing patterns and simulated flame outs. So as an instructor, you would be over the working airspace and there's all these little, you know, civilian airports. One, you would, as a student, you'd have to do like two or three of these somewhere in your like initial contact training 
where you the instructor would pull the engine to idle and you'd have to manage your energy to safely land this plane, right? You wouldn't touch down, but it's a it's a skill set. It's something to throw a tool to throw in the tool bag, right? That all right, maybe they're flying a C seventeen later on down the road and all right, they got four engines. It doesn't necessarily tie one for one uh, as far as like they're never going to have, well, never say never, right? There has been a C-17 that flamed out all four motors um, going through a thunderstorm. So don't do that. But that, I think that's a skill set that it does translate down the road where if it's a go, maybe it ties into assault landing, et cetera. So it's airmanship that you're building there. And when you start removing these pieces, you... I think see that down the road and the F-16, you know, they got rid of air refueling in the B course at one point. Really? Uh, I, I think wow. it might have made it way, way back in. So that was, that was one Jeez. thing we had a mishap at Shaw right after I left. And I've talked about his Messer's mishap, but his first time going to the tanker was doing a night seed sortie and seed arguably in the F-16 is one of the most, I'd say it's the most complex mission set. It was during COVID, you know, so not flying a whole lot. He's going through mission qualification training, MQT. So he's trying to learn the mission of the F-16. And he can't get gas. And then he's beating himself up. Probably like you're keeping score, right, as you're doing your GPA on the boat. Like he's beating himself up because he knows because he couldn't get gas. They couldn't do this mission. They're going to deploy. They're only the next night week might, you know, be never or it might be, you know, four weeks from now. Like, all those things are playing in his mind. I'm assuming I wasn't in his mind, right? But I've been there where you're like, I'm the limb fact now. I'm like, I'm not gonna be able to get this ride done. I need this syllabus event done. Um, but he had in the B course, they said, yeah, we'll just get it done in the calf squadron in the, in the combat air forces squadron. And the problem is while you have instructors who can't fly in the backseat of like the occasional D model, like we, that's not what we do. Like you, as an instructor in a calf squadron, like they're hanging on your wing and like, yeah, man, go forward a little bit. They talk about it in the brief, but it's not like a B course squadron where there's a dude who is sitting in the back and he's done this a hundred times with a brand new student. And this tanker ride is purely dedicated essentially to getting gas. Like you'll go out and do some BFM, but the real focus is getting gas, not go out there and do a very dynamic mission set. Um, I had a instructor, he was weapon school grad. He was like weapon school instructor of the year, like two times in a row, but he could like teaching at such a basic level. Not that it was impossible for him, but he's used to teaching at such a high level that when it's like the basics of left hand, right hand is like, I don't know, just be better. You know, like that's, that's the, this is, this is what I do. So maybe you try it, you know, like this is what I think about. Um, so yeah, I think to circle back, like eliminating these things from the syllabus, Expedites the timeline, but you, there is a cost with all of it. And ultimately, I think it's probably airmanship. And I do asterisk this for in my uh, rant here is there's advantages. Like, so all the my buddies who flew the Strike Eagle, the A-10, or the F-16 that went to the F-35, they say students coming out of the B course are equivalent of like a four-ship flight lead. When it comes to running tactics, like, hey, here's your lane. Like normally this lane would have been guarded by a four ship of Vipers and the four ship flight lead is managing the the tactics of that lane. But now you can kick a, a wingman who's brand new in the F-35 and he's got the lane or she's got the lane and can see everything. But again, it's 
here's your Nokia phone and the Viper versus your iPhone. Like, oh, sweet. I can actually see what's going on. And the Viper, you're just fighting tooth and nail to, like, I think that's, I think that's my sort. Maybe, you know, like, maybe I got a radar lock. Maybe I don't, you know. So there's apples and oranges, but I don't know. Can F-35 wingman fly uh, in close formation? It's a challenge to all you F-35 wingmen. You can you chime in. It's in my the hate uh, yeah. mail. But that's that's an aspect of it, I think. No, you, you're hitting the nail on, on a head, too. I think something that's very important. And I, I meant to preface it earlier. I will say the caveat of anything I've said thus far and everything I will say is my own personal opinion. Um, and not the express opinion of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. Um, <laughs> I have it on my website, so I got the, the blanket perfect. statement. Which you just—it's guys in the squadron who are at the this level talking about it, right? Like it's not. Oh, I'm not in—I'm not in the Pentagon with these strategic level decision makers, you know. So there's other and, pieces to this. And this is just the take of an instructor pilot. Um, yeah. So, kind of a unique aspect of the F-35 and. I, I assume I, I've been meaning to ask a Raptor guy. Um, don't know any personally, but at least as far as the Navy and Marine Corps are concerned, the F-35 is the first fleet aircraft we've had that does not have a two-seat variant, period, dot. It's a single-seat aircraft. So the fact that we have to take our students um, out of flight school where they flew the T-6, T-45, they've always had an instructor in the backseat, and their first flight with us is going to be it. There's no one there to take the controls and kind of bail them out of a situation. It means that there's a very, very high bar of the ability to make some pretty challenging decisions, both tactically as well as just as a pilot and deal with what comes. Uh, just because there is no, throw your hands up, it's not my day. Um, yeah. Not saying that other platforms and communities do that. It's just there's a certain sense of I took off, I have to land. And one funny story I'll have about that is when I was getting ready for my first flight in the jet, uh, I'm printing out my kneeboard cards for my instructor. And, and what we do, if people are wondering, well, then how do you instruct? It's, well, we early on for their fams, they pretend like they're alone and we follow them in an F-35 and just are there on the radio to assist. And we're just observing from the other aircraft. Um, and there's quite a bit we can see with our data links and quite a bit of information, but uh, they have to do it all themselves. And I'm printing out my D-board card for my first flight. And my CO at the time, he he, he ducks his head in the, the room. And I'm just in the S3 shop, the kind of ground training shop, full of Marines, all in their cubicles, and getting my D-board cards. And he's like, hey, Keegan. I was like, oh, yes, sir. He's like, is it, uh, is it your first flight today? I was like, oh, yes, sir, it is. And he's like, you know, how, how much do those jets cost? I was like, uh... 115 120 i think and he's like yeah yeah it's pretty expensive isn't it and i was like ah yes sir it is and um uh, hate to do it but he just looks at me and he's like hey don't fuck it up walks out <laughs> just walks out the door not another word so i'm standing with my papers and i'm like cool and unbeknownst to me there's a, a young corporal who had heard this interaction he doesn't know i'm still there and he like peeks his head around the cubicle to talk to another marine and he's like Man, if that was me, I'd be scared shitless. And then I look over and I'm like, hey, Corporal, how's it going? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> so That's awesome. Yeah, it, it was it was fantastic. It broke the ice. It was good. But um, 
definitely to what you're saying, I look back on the fact that this is all I've ever flown. I truly don't know what it was like to fly fourth gen aircraft or, you know, legacy aircraft. Um, I've always found that term funny, uh, frankly. Like, it's, a marketing, it's a marketing term. Absolutely, right? Like legacy, it's like, I mean, everything that's whatever. Um, well, but anyway. Bender will say the Raptor is legacy fifth gen. So, but I mean, the fourth gen, fifth gen, that's all marketing and brilliant oh. marketing, uh, you know. It is, it is. And I've had Raptor guys call me MRM deficient, which <laughs> I do get a chuckle at. Um, they hold six, we hold four. But yeah. um, no, the, the whole point of that is that I had to talk to, I had to actually seek out an understanding of what fourth gen pilots see and what their, what their scopes look like, what their displays look like, what kind of information is being displayed to them. Because when you're a purebred F-35 guy, I, I've always had the huge touchscreen. I've always had fusion where all of our systems are all working in tandem. And when they work well, it's brilliant and it's transparent. Uh, guys will talk about like our block 10, 20, and you know, they'll talk about backseaters running numbers and recommitting and doing all this magic in the back and uh, yeah. nothing like a good backseater in cast. It, it, all experiences that I've never had and will never have. And it took a lot of reaching out to folks for me to gain an appreciation for that, frankly. Um, even I had, when I was in Yuma, we had two Air Force exchange pilots with us. We had a, a Ghost Whitey and a Slider Newman. Okay. I think they were uh, Viper dudes out of Kunsan. And when they showed up, they were talking to me about lofting with their flight leads to take shots and like, staying in visual formation. And it's just like... Yeah. I'm like, oh, that all sounds insane. Like, no chance, paddles. Uh, I'm going to do my thing. Because so when we when we take these these young pilots and try to make them into, you know, combat-ready wingmen, um, it's kind of what your previous guests have said. It's, it's we fight in formations that are so, can be so spread out that I have to have that trust and confidence. Like, that new wingman who gets to the fleet, who I once was, like, they have to be able to be given their part of the DCA lane part on the strike, right? Like pick up whatever role we're doing that day and just have the trust and confidence. That it's like, cool, man, you're going to use that fancy jet and all that equipment, all that SA you have, and you're going to make what we call like independent fighter decisions because ultimately mutual support is crucial to us. And there are times where I'll be able to pitch in, but the immediate tactical challenge that you're presented is mostly going to fall down to you. And it's going to be their ability to process the information, both they're hearing on the radio, seeing on their displays, and being in the right place at the right time. I, I may not have the bandwidth or the time to be super directed with them, you know? And when we have a really good student who makes it through the program and is the kind of cat that you would deploy with tomorrow off your wing because they're just always magically where they're supposed to be and making the right comp call, you know, you look down, you're like, man, they're, it's awesome. We're winning it. Like, um, we do put out a product, I think, that can be at that high level tactically. But I will reiterate what a lot of your guests said, that when we have someone, because quality spreads a thing. Um, not everyone's God's gift aviation, and that's myself included. <laughs> uh, they're far better pilots than me out there. Um, but the color we see is generally related to admin. It's generally related towards that challenge of being taught to fight in non-visual formations 
and some of the scariest moments we have happen in kind of that visual arena. So we do put a real emphasis on forcing folks to fly visually and to kind of continue those old, old school fighter jet, like since the dawn of time, right. habit patterns um, and those skill sets, because it's easy. It's far too easy, I think, in the F-35 to let that like fall away, to just be like, hey, man, we're going to take off and we'll never get within a mile of each other. Right. But something goes wrong. I was a I was a new guy in the fleet and I went up to Northern Lightning with my squadron, the MFA 122 in Yuma. We went up to Northern Lightning. We had F-35 squadron stood up in October of the previous year. This is like August of the next year. I got there in June. So like many young pilots who get to the fleet, it's like, hey, we're going to go do an exercise. We're doing a bunch of LFEs. Like we're going to we're going to push you through your codes, right? We got to get you green. Got to get all your prereqs met so you can go out there and get your 3000 level codes, as we call them. And I'm out there and it's a sortie where we're taking off. We're fighting in some of the northern airspace. Name escapes me, uh, but it's not the airspace right above Volk Field. And we launch and okay. I'm flying with a lieutenant colonel and we're going up there to tank and do DCA. And it was going to be some FI. And we're on the way up there and he says, hey, to um, um, kind of get some degradations in my system. Uh, can you just give me like kind of no gyro steers to like zero four five. And I'm like, yeah, come right. I was like, stop turn. And he's like, okay, cool. I'm working it. And I was like, okay. And it was like a relatively IFR day. Like ceilings were down to about thousand, fifteen hundred feet, but it was pretty socked in up until like the mid twenties. So we're just flying in the goo and he keeps talking to me. And I'm like, ah, like, I think his jet's in a worse spot than I thought. So luckily <laughs> he gets into some clear air. We're transiting up to the airspace. We're not even there yet. And then he's like, Hey, to, uh, this jet's not working out for me today. He's like, I'm going to need you to drive me around so I can join up on you and then take us back to Volk. And I'm like, okay, cool. And you know, lo and behold, I give him a turn visual. He joins up on me and I'm having to fly the Lieutenant Colonel back in for like the, you know, section ILS to land. And that was within me being in the squadron for a whopping like two months, you know, like, you think that you can show up and you can kind of just be that cat who's like, oh, I'm just going to be a two or a four. I'm just going to be that wingman, right? I just got to listen to the right comm calls and everything will be fine. And I tell, tell the studs, I was like, dude, next thing you know, you're the guy having to work through an emergency. Like, we're flying back. And he's like, okay, my my uh, my climb dive marker's back. And I'm like, I'm like, you're like, this guy's been flying off his SFD. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I had no idea how bad the situation was in his jet, you know? But it's that level of, I think, trust and confidence that we have to build. And that's why I brought up the boat and the solo pilot time and the admin kind of focus that we try to instill. Because tactics are tactics, but if you can't get to or from the fight, then it truly yeah, doesn't matter. We brought the point, too. I mean, it's the joke, right? You're flying a $120 million jet. If you're flying a Viper, it's a $60 million jet that's irreplaceable. But um yeah, regardless, like you show up in a wingman and like, yeah, your flight lead, your instructor pilot that day, motor decides it's not working. Like you're it. You're the only one out there doing mutual support potentially. Um, so you just have to be, you have to be a champion day one. And obviously you're gonna be learning and getting better each and every time. But the airmanship piece, that's, that's the, it's the fine line, right? Between like, Hey, we do have to leverage technology and iterate and innovate and you know, do things a little bit smarter. Um, it's not quite Vietnam anymore, but there are just some like basic, things that I don't think you can get rid of. And regardless, like whatever you get rid of, like that's, if you get rid of one sortie, right, that's one less hour in the air that one, you're potentially exposed to something that was different that you didn't know about. You had the aha moment or 
yeah, it's just it's one less hour of like building that skill set, sitting in the seat, being able to manage a dynamic 3D, 4D environment, whatever you want to call it, uh, that potentially down the road can reach back in that tool bag and, and pull that tool out. Like, oh, yeah, this is sweet. So it's expensive, expensive bet. It's funny because I, I want to make sure I phrase it correctly, but our jets here at 501, they are older. I mean, they're not in terms of, you know, the F-18s, F-15s, F-16s that are right. flying out there. Um, old is, once again, a relative term. Uh, but they are some of the earliest model jets that the Marine Corps had that have been upgraded from software all the way from, I think, potentially even have like some 1A jets. I flew some of these when they were 2B jets and now fleets 3F and there's other TVs associated. F-35 talk. Yeah, software loads, the whole F-35, like we just, at least in the virus, like block 10, block yeah. 15, block yeah. 20, block 25. Like, it kept it simple. Like and now I'm like 1F, 2F, I don't know. Oh, this yeah. is a block. This is a zero. Like what? I don't understand. Oh, we got HMODs, TVs. We, we got all kinds of acronyms. Our program loves acronyms. And regardless. It's a uh, military thing. It is. Uh, our jets are older and they have issues. And what I want to phrase correctly is I don't want students to have EPs, but having flown here for two years and having run the gamut of either EPs that I've experienced or that students have, um, both are actually like such valuable, like invaluable training experiences. Um, because a student has an EP and you're there and sometimes you got to talk them off the ledge so they don't go GQ as we call it, general quarters, naval term, like kind of lose their yeah, minds. EP emergency, emergency procedure. So uh, they got some kind of, something wrong with their jet. Yeah. Something wrong with their jet. And like, sometimes you gotta, you gotta kind of hand puppet the student a little bit and be like, Hey man, like start descending. Hey man, I need some more speed, right? Like speed up. And then it's like, Whoa, brother, like. Slow it on down. We don't need to come home for the straight end of 400, man. Like, this isn't going to end well. Um, and then you get on deck and the student's a little shaken up and you're just like, hey, man, like handshake, like nice job today. Like that may have been your first real EP and it's not going to be your last, but it gives them, like you said, it's all about the tools in the toolkit and it's about overcoming that adversity and getting your experience with it, right? That first time, <laughs> that first time you really scare yourself and you go to bed or you try that night and your kind of heart's still racing and you're still thinking about what happened. It's like, those are the experiences that truly to me pay dividends because when you see those things in the future, you're able to come at them from a much more calm and collected place. So to a sense, I do like when something happens to my airplane or my students, because I'm like, this is, this is good. Like this is one of those moments to where hopefully you get to the fleet and hopefully you don't make it all the way to, to combat before you're experiencing that. Hopefully you're able to train yeah. to it, have a happy day. And I know that you're that much better off for it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And for those listening, the most important thing is to sound good on the radio when you're having an emergency, you know, because they're going to play that one back in the accident board. So if you pack it in, at least you sounded good going in. Um, I want to pivot here a little bit. So you obviously you get kicked out the door, your F-35 qualled. Can you talk to me about um, some of the deployment stuff? Because you did OIR and then... Somalia, were those coincided together or is that two different deployments? So I only did the uh, one deployment when I was with 122 in the fleet. And similar to what you were talking about with word shifts, timeline shift, I, I received the call when I was finishing up training, like, hey, man, it's good you're coming out here in June. We're going to deploy like that winter. And then it became the next summer. And then it became that winter. <laughs> and I showed up summer of 2018 and 
due to everything that happened, uh, also throw a little COVID in there. Um, we don't end up doing our workups until the summer of 2020, um, in the middle of COVID, which was its own challenge. And I will preface this by saying that this deployment, it was a MEW, Marine Expeditionary Unit, so the 15th MEW off the West Coast, and even our voyage plan changed. Like we, here in advance, we get briefed where we're gonna go so we can kind of think about that, kind of tailor our training towards the AO that we're gonna be operating in. And even that shifted and COVID really made things uh, very challenging, but we set sail and initially it was game plan. We knew we were gonna spend some time in 7th Fleet and we were gonna sail around in the Pacific. We were going to stop by um, Japan, Hawaii, like get refuels, refits, like ships need to many times. Generally, the U.S. Navy has a, a very impressive logistics operation they're conducting worldwide at all times. So there's a lot of things you can receive at sea, such as fuel, uh, food, mail, all of that. Either ships will pull up alongside and they'll either connect the cables and run all that stuff over. Um, they'll have helicopters come and drop it all off, do vert reps. So a lot of that you can get while you're still sailing, but some of it you will pull into port briefly. Some of the heavier items, some things that can't be airlifted. Um, and so we knew we were going to go to some places, but we combined our two last workups with our deployment because of COVID. It was such a struggle to deal with the ROMs, the restriction of movement and COVID protocols. And <laughs> I was all that's things. a new one for me. What's yeah, uh, ROMs? ROMs? Man, go yeah. classic. So make an acronym out of that. Oh man. And, and not fun. Like I will preface all this just so that if any of my tone comes across a certain way, it's, um, it's the way it was, but we were going to combine our last two workups with the deployment. Itself. That's a super positive way to look at it. Cause I don't know. I was talking to my buddies who F 35s, uh, and they were just telling me like the briefings and like the shenanigans that went on, whatever I'm, I'm just, I'll say it. But the uh, it sounded like a super painful time. Like I would jab a pin in my eye if I was walking around the squadron and I had to go sit in a brief and do this and that, and then how they're managing you know people so close contact. But again, it is what it is. I hadn't heard Roms though. That's a fun one. Yeah, we before we got on board the ship for our last workups and to set sail and do all of the fun stuff. Um, we were Roms on base uh, for two weeks, and I lived. 12 miles down the road and we'd already been restricted to our residence. So it's not a commentary on that policy, just merely not a great way to start a workup. Uh, and to this is just how it was. Say goodbye to your family. It's just how it was. You say goodbye to your family and they know you're in a building 12 miles away and them's the, that's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Them's the bricks, but yep. we end up on the ship. We do our workups. We set sail. And like I said, we kind of had our voice plan. We knew eventually we knew that we were going to end up in the ag, the Arabian Gulf. And we set sail at the very beginning of November after getting on the boat in October. And then around the middle of November, I think at this point we had done a quick stop by Japan, now Hawaii first, then Japan. We basically received short order tasking to like basically beat feet steam as fast as the ship can uh, when we're not doing flight offs because the ships have to vary their speed for flight offs. But it's like, hey, spare no delay, like go and get off the coast of Somalia so that we could conduct operations supporting uh, Operation Octave Quartz out there. And we get briefed this in the middle of um, November and it's like, oh, okay, and like when's this all starting? And it's like, hey, you guys are gonna be there like December, like get there. 
And so short order tasking within two weeks, we're off the coast of Somalia, and then we're doing operations there and kind of given a kind of a TBD with that. It was just, we're going to be there. We're not exactly sure how long. And Operation Ops of Quartz was the relocation of DOD assets, as well as some allied force assets from certain bases in Somalia to other locations. And how that worked out for us and our piece in it. Um, also, there was a carrier that showed up later and was conducting similar operations with their Hornets. And I had a buddy on that carrier as well. Um, we basically were placing ourselves in the overhead, uh, providing ready to provide casts in support of any kind of hostilities that popped up or if there was any kind of threat that showed up that day uh, because Al-Shabaab had been quite active in the time previous to us arriving. And we knew um, a lot of the relocation was done with C-130s and there was all kinds of log flights moving in day in and day out. So they knew that that presence would be noticed and would be cataloged and very easy to see it happening. So uh, we were there just kind of providing overwatch and sortie durations were about four hours long and just kind of scanning as best we could. You probably heard about our T-FLIR in the F-35 and how it's kind of a, it's built in, it's got a laser, it's got all these fine capabilities, but the, the image quality is not necessarily the best. Um, right. Yeah, so working through that and getting good with using it. And I guess one funny aside I have there is I've got a good buddy of mine. He's in my squadron now. We're talking to the JTACs. You check in and you're just burning and turning hanging out, go to the tanker, come back. And we we have maps, we have charts, we have diagrams that we're, you know, looking at MSRs and entry points and standard stuff. But he uh, he's looking through his T-flare and he sees like a b- bunch of movement and he starts getting a little spooled up. Like, tells the JTAC, like, hey, I, I, I've got something here. Like, give me a second. Let me like wheel around to the other side real quick. But like, I don't know. It looks like they're heading towards like the ECP or whatever. And, and you know, the JTAC starting to get a little excited too. Like, Whoa, is this it? Like, is this a big deal? We're going to do something. Yeah. Dude. yeah. And he's like, yeah. Oh, it might be like 20, 25 military age males. I don't know. And, and he's like going. And then when he gets back around to get a better angle and he looks, he says, the first thing he notices is he started counting legs and he noticed that most of them didn't have two. They had four. And so <laughs> his pod had actually uncaged on um, a goat herd. <laughs> And a herder. That's all. <laughs> so the JTAC's like, I'm, man, I'm running to get to a better position to get eyes on. And he's like, yeah, uh, herd of goats. Never mind. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a passionate aviation enthusiast? And you'll be thrilled to hear about our sponsor, Aircore Aviation. This exciting company has been revolutionizing the aviation industry since 2008, and they have some amazing career opportunities available. More about that in just a minute. Aircore Aviation is at the forefront of airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating all the way back to World War II. Their dedicated team is involved in various aspects of aerospace, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support using state-of-the-art technology. Their exceptional expertise in core manufacturing capabilities like metal forming, CNC machining, and complete aircraft rebuilding has led to the restoration of some award-winning aircraft, such as a couple P-51s, such as P-51 Thunderbird, Twilight Tier, and Sierra Su-2. And if you've been following me for a while, you might remember I was fortunate enough to fly over the Super Bowl in 2018 in Minneapolis. The formation was led by Sierra Su-2 alongside two A-10s and myself in F-16. So this is a very cool full circle experience. 
These incredible achievements have captured the attention of aircraft owners, aviation enthusiasts, and the general public alike. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation, then Aircore Aviation is the perfect place for you. They are rapidly expanding their team in 2024 and have job openings in departments such as engineering and CAD, quality assurance, fabrication, and restoration. This is your chance to turn a passion into profession. Aircore Aviation is offering some amazing benefits for full-time positions, including health insurance, PTO, HSA, retirement plans, life insurance, and the extra perk of enjoying Fridays off. If you're ready to be part of a team dedicated to fulfilling the dreams to the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com backslash careers today and take the first step towards an exciting career in aviation. Again, that's aircoreaviation.com backslash careers. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Uh, well, um, and that, you know, I, I have a funny story. I actually certified the cables at Djibouti, um, which is another stuff. We were down there supporting, obviously, there was another country we were, we were dealing with, but same deal, send an alert, and we would go plot. If, if need be, we'd be a cast platform for if break glass, right? But sitting in the, the jock with the guys we were supporting, and like, yeah, we've only done this like once where we actually like actioned a, an objective. And we killed everyone. So you're like, well, yeah, we're probably not going to do anything. And lo and behold, we didn't. But then Al Shabab, just next door, um, they're like, hey, they're going to have a big meeting, and we were sitting alert, day on it. I mean, it was 24 hours. Like at some point, this meeting is going to happen in a dry lake bed. It's going to be all of them. It's going to be 150 of their buddies, and you're just going to go like just destroy everything. It's like this is going to be epic. We did that for like four days, and then like. Yeah, meeting's not going to happen. You're like shocker. Uh, but they're like, hey, we got to. We have this cable we've been just griping about. We need to get put in. So they would sent this team in there to install install two cables. And like we got to certify the cable. We're like we're leaving in like four or five days. Like, do we really need to certify this? Like, there are going to be there will be no more fighters coming in there. And I think you have to certify the cable every six months is what the requirement is. But you buy you buy risk when you put a jet into a cable, even yeah. though you're doing it at slow speed, a hundred knots. The first I certify, it's kind of like a downhill. I don't know what the grade is on the runway, but it was there's a grade to the runway. But I take the cable. This is the first cable I've ever taken. And you do it like you hit it about 90, 100 knots. 100 knots is the max. As, uh, we'll get to here in a minute. But I, I hit the cable, and I'm just sliding off the side of the runway. The guys who certified the cable or built the cable and installed it, like we're standing on the side of the runway videoing this. But when I hit the cable, like, one of the housings just completely exploded. I mean, it's tires and chains and metal just flying everywhere. And I did everything I could to stay on the runway. So I stay on the runway. I'm like, well, that was sporty. Do we want to do the other cable? Like, we just had a – that was almost a very significant emotional event. Um, like, yeah, no, we got to certify. So I taxi back in. They moved down to the, the other cable. I hit that one doing, like, 104 knots, which the cable bounces up and hits the bottom of the jet, unbeknownst to me. I do the walk around afterwards. And I'm like, yep, everything looks normal. And like I specifically like look under the jet because I'm like, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that's happening back here. And like I don't notice anything. Go back in and like about 20 minutes later, maintenance calls like, oh yeah, the jet's going to the boneyard. There's no like this thing's never flying again. Yeah, you know, I mean it was like it's was, it was this overly dramatic thing. Like what? Or like yeah, the cable hit the bottom of the jet. So then I you know go back out there and like it's just like these little scratches. I was like, ah, but where it hit was yep. like the golden bb like there's some wall underneath there that's structurally you know 
a, a structure, aerospace engineer, whatever it is, you tell me. But yeah, it's uh, they had to bring in an engineer to like look at it or something. And you're like, all right, or send it off to an engineering team. Like, okay, it's actually fine. Like, yeah, stop being so dramatic. But it's a great spot. That region, love that region. Yeah, super, super awesome. I, I will say, and I mean, part of it, um, we didn't we didn't drop anything there. And as a young as a young pilot going out there, kind of a thing that I'm sure younger listeners will readily understand. I, I grew up in an era where we were fighting the global war on terror and yeah. with my high school and everything, like I, I watched plenty of high school classmates actually go out and enlist like during the surge, you know, and go out to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, a lot of them as Marines. And, you know, sometimes it's, it, you like smash cut and it's like, I don't get out there until 2020 and the operations we're doing are very different, right? It's not 2008, 2012. It's, it's not when, a lot of my instructors were flying and serving. So um, our time in Somalia was quiet and that's good because our mission there was to ensure that bases were relocated safely. Right. You know, like eh, as much as you want to be the guy to actually like, you know, take the, the cast um, nine line to be there for the tick. It's like, I saw those videos. I saw what happened last time and there's benefits towards your time there being quiet. Um, and Somalia. We, we also found out that our jets were limited in what we could carry at the time. So we basically had GV-12, GV-32 in our gun. And 12 is 500 pounder, 32 is 1,000 pounder. And frankly, Somalia just didn't look like how I imagined it would. I, I kind of imagined it being much more arid. And there was more greenery there than I really expected in the fall. Um, honestly, a beautiful country. Like, and... Yeah. The population center. Coastline's amazing. Yeah. And the, the people, the population centers, I mean, they're big. And it was kind of roundly told that we're like, what's your smallest weapon? And we're like, uh, 500 pound bombs. And they're like, uh, we, ugh, like, not for what we're dealing with. If we're dealing with like a, a network of folks communicating via cell phone and having meetings on motorcycles, right? Um, I mean, they're smart. They adapt. Yep. Uh, adversaries are certainly not fools. And, they knew that place themselves in places to where a 500 pound bomb is not the answer to that, frankly. And we were kind of, yeah, it's the first time I wasn't expecting to hear that where it's like, sorry, your weapons are actually, yeah, they're too much for the situation we're here for. So, um, that was a quiet time after that we were there for about a month, six weeks. And then we transitioned to the ag. So sewed in, through the Straits of Hormuz, and then we conducted about a month of operations in the Arabian Gulf, which is where we'd always been expecting to go. Um, Somalia, we just did that a little bit earlier. And while we're in the ag, we had a few folks that flew missions in Afghanistan, and they actually did some work with some JTACs up there, but also kind of interesting, right? Like history is many times more interesting after the fact. Um, we did limited missions in Afghanistan, and it was quiet. There was like nothing going on. And this was um, early 2021, you know, and like looking back on yeah. it, it's yeah, it, it, it seems sleepy. Uh, operations are not very kinetic there. And the preponderance of our missions we did were over OIR. And we had a few folks that did some casts there and we dropped a little bit of ordinance there. But the preponderance of our sorties were actually uh, doing DCA up there over Iraq and the eastern part of Syria. And we kind of worked both to the south near ATG as well as to the north. And that is something that a lot of folks got experience with. 
but it was cool to be there in an F-35. And for us, for, for the guys in purebred, the dudes who'd flown the F-35 in Conus, where you take off, you can see all the airliners, you have all this SA. It was very, very eye-opening to fly in the Arabian Gulf and to fly in the Middle East, where we're not just seeing airliners. Um, we're seeing like surface air sites everywhere because right. everyone has them and you take off and you just start looking at your displays and you're like, wow, uh, these countries are much closer together than I imagined. And I can actually see quite a bit across the board of what's out here. And that was kind of an eye-opening experience. And even when we're in our DCA lanes, um, once again, carried weapons and obviously people would have heard if that went off, it didn't, but right. manning a DCA lane opposite of like Russian fighters on the other side and being able to get data from that, like that was also interesting in a sense. Just it's a good, it's a good way of putting it. I I think it's uh, I can relate. I thought when I finally got to pilot training, then I faped, and then they get the Viper. Like man, I missed it all. Like I missed all this stuff, you know. Because nine eleven, it's like I wanted to get into the fight, and you, know, you just wanted to get after it. And you're like, oh. but then you soon find out that uh, we're always at war. There's always conflict, so it's going to happen. But you know, you you hit on it, but you kind of like. I think it deserves more uh, attention. If you think like the dynamics of the environment you're operating in, when you're like, yep, we're in the Strait of Hormuz and, uh, you know, some guys did some casts and things like that. But if people can picture just drawing out, right, Syria, like when I was doing OIR, those first time, you know, you see in like SA-5s and SA-17s pop up and they're like, oh, well, we don't, like Assad, we don't really know what he's going to do, but surely he's not going to do anything and then the russians that's when the russians showed up in syria but how weird of a dynamic that you know you split syria in half you have russians you have syrians jump i mean not too like you mentioned like you're operating here and then as you truck back to the boat you're flying past iran uh, i mean there's turkey to the north depending on what day of the week you know how they're feeling we keep having turkish vipers that would lock us up it was, it was right after their coup and stuff like stop, you know, like stop doing that. But we couldn't go in there and get gas. We couldn't. Uh, we couldn't cross the border. At one point, if we had to cross the border for an emergency, you'd have to storage jet, get rid of all your bombs. I mean, just like weird stuff. But the the geopolitical environment that you're operating in there, with a lot of people that are not friendly, or we just people are not getting along. That's wild. And to think about it too, it's like yeah, doing the DCA defensive counter air. Like when you're training, usually you go out to the airspace. There's a northern part or a southernmost uh, part, eastern or western, right? It's a northeast or, or sorry, a north to south or an east to west fight. But then when you get plopped down into like real like geopolitics, like it could be 360 or 270 degrees of like where bad people are coming from. Like it, it's it's wild, man. Also different different fight. Oh, 100%. And and even like the coalition aspect because I mean there were there were like British yeah. British tankers up there. Um there were typhoons in theater, you know, like the the French were doing an exercise in the Pacific later on that we took part in in some ways, but like yeah, hearing the different voices on the radio and being like, "Oh, this is the real event." And it's funny you mentioned the geopolitical aspect too. There was a while well, there were the, while we were there, there was an event that happened and you'd brief because the routes, um, basically, since we're shipborne and we weren't operating off of air bases, we would launch out from wherever the ship was holding in the ag. And sometimes we were in the, the nag, the northern portion of the sag, the southern. 
You launch off the ship. I love it. The ag, ag, nag, sag. Ag, nag, sag. I'm learning right? so much here. It's, yeah. But wherever the ship is, you would know where the ship was when you launched, naturally. And the ship would <laughs> promise you, hey, when you come back in eight or nine hours, we'll probably be here. And it generally was not the same place. They would transit north or south. And so, you know, you'd have your charts and you'd be like, cool, we're going to plan for this. We're going to go up this route. We meet with the tanker very quickly and you basically be on the tanker all the way up through the highway into um, Syria, Iraq, and where we're conducting our ops. And then while we were there, like, because you knew all along the route, something happens, this is going to be our divert, right? Diverts all along the way. And they would involve multiple countries. And there's a geopolitical event that happened when we were out there. And it was such that we were told, like, hey, um, the head of their air forces has said, like, they are not rendering assistance to U.S. aircraft at this time. Like, do not consider landing in their country if something happens and it was like wow like as a pilot you're like man i'm just flying my missions just thinking about my divert airfields right and it was just a little weird to be like okay like i guess that's off the table um cool we'll update but um one funny one uh well one story i go up there and <laughs> i'm with my debt oic uh lieutenant colonel at this point because when we debted out on the ship um we were a detachment and we were composited. So the way MUSE work is there's the ground combat element, air combat element, logistics combat element, ACE, GC, LC, great. Um, but it's all these different <laughs> groups of Marines all on the same ship. And as you can kind of imagine, it meant that there's 600 infantry Marines on board, right? There's Osprey pilots, there's Navy helicopter pilots, there's, um, Artillerymen, like the hold of the ship doesn't just have aircraft in it. Below that, the lower decks, it has um, LAVs inside of it, AVs, used to transitioning a little bit with that. But I mean, it's stuffed to the brim with all different manners of Marine Corps troops and equipment because the Marine Corps is obviously very infantry and ground centric. So when you think of the LHD, and I was on the Macon Island, it wasn't just. It's easy to look at it. It looks like a little aircraft carrier. And for us pilot types, it's easy to bite off on that. Just be like, ah, so it's just a little deck carrier. Got it. Um, without realizing there's 600 grunts on board, you know, doing their thing. Uh, but long story short, the ship kind of has, is also run by the Navy, right? The ship has a ship's captain and the Mew has a Mew CO. So we had a colonel who's in charge of the Navy ship and a colonel is in charge of us Marines. And they're like equal, but separate. And you know, one person is in charge of the vessel, the other person's in charge of the Marines. And it can lead to a mixture of priorities. And it means that like the ship is not necessarily there for us, right? As the air wing and as the F-35 detachment, like it's there conducting its own operations. And so I'm flying with my dead OIC, Lieutenant Colonel. Um, there were 10 of us pilots on board for six jets. We launch, go to our sortie up in OIR, coming back generally because the length of the sorties are coming back at night. And when we're coming back, the winds were just shifting in the ag. Um, and we found the boat. That was all fine. But we get there and paddles or LSO, much like on carriers, he's talking to us from the tower so we can come into holding and execute our landing ops at night. And he's talking to us and he's like, hey, we're, we're driving around right now. We're trying to steer into winds because ships are capable, unlike airfields ships are capable of creating their own wind by sailing though you can only do that so much 
right? If the winds are strong enough or for us, what hit us is they were just shifting too much. It's like every time the ship steered in a direction, the winds would blow out of limits in a different direction because there's actually a relatively a prescribed band in which you can land. And so we're holding, we're holding. He's like, we're turning, we're turning it. He's like, hey, your, your signal's divert. He's like, divert how you deep. Like, what's your feel state? Like, we're not going to get you on board in time. Go. And so I start talking to the controller and start being like, hey, we need to go to IUD. And they're like, okay, who are you? Like this, that, the other. And we're just working the comm flow. And the controller's like, hey, I'm talking to Duff. Like, I'm talking to them. They, like, they're kind of asking why, what's going on. Like, and she was kind of insinuating. She's like, you know, if you said a certain word, it would really help me. And I was like, no, not yet. Minfuel, uh, we need to get over there. And she's doing this back and forth. Like, won't switch us to... Um, approach control, even though we're like 50 miles away. We're like right there. And we're talking. Yeah. And then eventually it's like, hey, they want to know, do you have any weapons on board? I'm like, yes. It's like, what kind of weapons? I was like, missiles and bombs, man. Both aircraft. Like, we're loaded. And long story short, we end up getting in there. It, it's a non-issue once we get all the comm flow and the tenseness over it. But we're like landing and and thankfully we got hooked up. Like, the, the guys working like the like Valine equivalent out there, like those dudes, awesome contractors showed up helped us out and they were asking they're like wait a minute like where did these planes come from like what what is this on like your tails because you know we actually have the ship on our tails and i was like yeah we're, oh, we're from okay. I didn't know that. yeah we're from the macon island and they're like what's that and i was like it's a ship like over there and they're like you guys came from a ship you know it's just weird because they're used to I mean, plenty of marine. Yeah, not used to that. No, and plenty of plenty of marine units. They like have dirt deaded out to the Middle East. You know, my buddies and Harriers went there both on news and also went there as dirt deaths. So, yeah, I kind of explained to folks. It's dirt like deaths. we're on a ship, man, just over the ocean over there. Believe us, get gassed up, head out the next day. Not an issue, but it's uh the ship ops are just that like interesting thing that's always a little bit different when it comes to operating out there. You know, and. This goes back to what we were earlier talking about, about the admin piece, you know? It's like, you've got to be able to, no matter what your mission is, if you're coming back to a ship, like there's a certain level of performance you have to be able to do. And that uncertainty of, is it going to be where I think it is? Are the winds going to be good? Is this, is it not going to turn away from me when I'm trying to land on it? Because that does happen, <laughs> you know? Well, it's something that's so basic as this. So I had Tally on the podcast, one of the early ones, and then... Tally and Poker. Poker's our weapons officer. They both have fuel issues over Syria. It's like back to back, and they're like, all right, one, in, I, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Poker had the more serious one. They're both serious, you know, with fuel, but they ended up diverting into Saudi Arabia. But it's a field that we had the airport diagram for with some frequencies on, and it was like a no kidding, like, it's a piece of concrete out there, so you really, like, you need it if you're going there. But it's at night. And something as simple as like clicking the CTAF lighting, you know, which you learn getting your, you know, your private pilot's license that not necessarily everyone gets in the Air Force anymore, but knowing to like click it seven times or five times or three times for the intensity that, you know, they needed that in order to see the runway uh, to get in there. And then same deal, you know, it's like you didn't expect to go here. They didn't expect you to be here. You got bombs in your jet involves the, you know, State Department and all sorts of stuff to get, get these jets turned around and get them out of there. Get them fixed and get them out of there. It spicy. It'd be real spicy, real quick. Yeah, I, the uh, the I, I want to talk like boat landing too. So I talked to some Harrier guys, like F thirty five. When it comes to hovering on the boat, like I know the Harrier utilized 
water to cool. Is there a certain time limit you have to get on the boat uh, where he's like either like, hey, you got to cool down. Are you using water? How does that work? I've never, I've never talked to a B-model guy. So I'll preface this by saying that um, this is where some of the key benefits of the F-35B actually like, completely come into play. Um, I have tons of Harrier guys and listening to some of their stories. I mean, it was, it could be a harrowing experience bringing back a Harrier with bombs to a ship at night. Like when they land on a ship, their stick is still the same stick. Their throttle is still the same throttle. They're controlling their nozzles, right? Like they are moving a lot of things directly as the pilot in order to land. And you're right that they have the water tank on board in case they need more performance out of their engine. Um, they can burn their water, but they are mentally having to remember and transition how they're controlling the airplane, but it is still flying a lot like an airplane. Um, the F-35B, we have, and all aircraft have control laws. I don't know to what extent everyone talks about them, but we talk about our claws for control laws a lot. And our jet, as best it can, tries to seamlessly integrate the various claws into one another so that as you as the pilot, as you've made a few selections on your switches, you are now entering a different claw. So you have to understand how your controls have changed at that point, but it's all happening transparent to us relatively. Um, right. So like lowering the landing gear, powered approach claw. Now we have auto throttle available to us. Um, if you put out your AR probe for error refueling, because naturally as a naval fighter, we have a refueling probe and we do probe and drogue ops. You enter the refueling claw and your speed brake has changed. And we have a virtual speed brake. We don't have a real one. So right. yeah, like our, our control services, our control services will deflect to give us the sensation and the performance of a speed brake, but there's no dedicated piece of metal that comes up into the airstream like other aircraft. So all that's happening in the background. Um, all to lead into when we convert into Stovall. So we hit the button that in the A is their hook button and the C is their hook button. For us, it commands the jet to enter Stovall or to exit Stovall. When we do that, initially, um, we have a envelope in which we can convert in and out. But when we go from normal CTOL mode to Stovall mode, at first, the claw is transparent. I mean, up and down, still up and down, left and right, forward, like you're still controlling your speed with your throttle. Um, that's relatively normal and it still flies basically like an airplane, like very little difference. As you slow down, you'll go from semi-jetborne. So jetborne meaning the weight of the aircraft is being carried by the thrust coming out of the aircraft directly. As you slow down, less airflow over the wings, less lift created by the wings to eventually in a hover, right? We're at the full opposite end of the spectrum where you're jet borne only. Um, as you transition through what we call the blend, where the preponderance of lift goes from the wings to the actual engine system of the jet, the claw transitions. And we've been coming in like an airplane. We've been slowing down. Cool. We go through the blend. Now we're if you're flying very slow or preparing to hover, you're sticking your throttle transition completely. So now um, the way I like to describe it to folks is like a claw machine, because I think that somewhat makes the most sense. Um, our stick now commands up and down and just height, height control. You'll go up and down, left and right still work. And that's using a mixture of our lift fan in the front, the nozzle that's swiveling in the back, as well as our roll posts located at our wing roots. 
they're all working in tandem for you to go left to right. Um, but your uh, your throttle, if you are in translational rate control, another mode we have. The jet, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, the jet is now smart enough to where you slow down, you're approaching the hover, you engage TRC, and now the jet is automatically correcting for winds, and it will stop you at a singular point over the ground and hold that. If you hold nothing, you will hover directly over that point in space at whatever ground speed you've commanded. So your left hand moves to a detent, and we call it a ramp. And then from there, if I go forward with my left uh, left hand, I will move forward until I stop. I let go, and I just stop. I just move feet at a time. Wait, That's it. The throttle fore aft? Correct. Throttle fore aft moves the wow. jet fore aft, but it's not necessarily a speed control. It's more of a like forward aft position control at that point. And so where I okay. talk about it being a claw machine is that if a Harrier wanted to climb, they're going to introduce more throttle, more output from their engine. They will climb. We pull our stick up, tells the jet I want to go up. So it's actually very intuitive once you've practiced with it a little bit, but it's very right. much different than just a normal jet flying. But the beauty of it is that point. If a Harrier guy's in a, if he's in a hover, he's working. I mean, he's working his ass off. He's adjusting to the winds. They have a wind vane on the nose of their aircraft, right? Like, he's adjusting for all that. The jet is perfectly dealing with the winds for me. I'm just choosing where I want to be in a space over the ground, and the jet is completely stable holding itself there, which is off the bat like a, an engineering marvel. Right? That is Yeah, the ridiculous. science and math that went into that is insanity to, to come up with that. I mean, it's wild. I do have to say this. I think a Bender, you know, broach out. I mean, at least it's related from him. You know, we've got to thank the Marine Corps for the canopy bow um, <laughs> because of that hover feature there. So, uh, hey, thanks. It, <laughs> On behalf of the United States Air Force. I, I will say to to all the folks who have to suffer through the canopy bow, um, you'll be happy to know that when our refueling probe is out, it is directly behind the canopy bow. So we can't see Good. it from the normal okay. position. So we have Good. to, you have to tank like this. <laughs> You have to look around it. So there's some yes. pain. Yes. Yeah. Good. All right. So yeah, every time. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll say about landing on the ship is that we're the Harrier had to come in and do it all manually. Um, our jet has a system called JPALS, the Joint Precision Approach Landing System. When you marry the jet up with that, it's a signal being transmitted from the ship that is telling the jet the ship's actual track as well as its ground speed. And so I hit one button to decelerate. And if I'm doing an air show, operating over a, an airfield, landing at a pad, many times I'll hit that button and I'm going to decelerate to zero because I want to be fixed in space over the ground. Take everything I've said. If J-PALS is working, I hit that button. It is telling the jet to marry up to that speed that the ship is traveling. So I come in, I do my approach, very similar to a Harrier through that point. But I hit a single button and the jet will bring me to a controlled hover right alongside the ship, maybe a knot or two difference in speed. And once again, you could go like hands off and you're matching pace with that ship. And then to land on it, it's as simple as move the stick to the right, sidestep, cool, forward aft, make sure I'm over my landing spot, scan my lights, stick down, lock that in, land. It could take you like a handful of button presses that, that folks in earlier aircraft, I mean, we're fighting the whole way down to that deck. Um, that to me is kind of the marvel of the F-35B is that if everything's working well, that amount of pilot workload, it's just shed that the aircraft is handling for you. I mean, when you've done your nine hour, 10 hour sorties, right? You're gassed. 
and you have to find a ship at night yeah. and everything's challenging. I mean, making the last few, like the last minute of that easier is awesome. Well, it's awesome about that is you have to make the plane easier to fly. Like I think the F-16 is easy to fly, but I imagine the F-35 is easier to fly. It allows you to focus on the tactics and like complex problem sets and being a better tactician and employer of weapons. Now, everything I think we said before about airmanship, like that doesn't go away. So it's finding that blend of how do you build solid airmanship? How do you leverage that? So when things don't work, you know, do you have to do, do you have to lead someone back on your wing to do a formation approach and God forbid landing. I don't know why you'd land in, in formation. You just go around and drop them off. But I mean, maybe there's a time like that sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's impressive to see the technology and like how it's evolved and like what is possible today, I think. And you being an aerospace engineer, you probably geek out a lot more than I do. Cause I'm like, ah, that's awesome. I'm drawing with crayons over here. I didn't make my crayon joke in the entrance, you know, usually that's a Marine thing, but I can't even do that with you. So oh. let's talk air shows real quick yeah. as we kind of wrap up, man. Cause you obviously, um, I'm eating up a lot of your time, but it's the Marine Corps. I mean, I like. Nowadays, I fly with dudes who are retired Marines or, you know, they're still doing the reserves, et cetera. Uh, but you always can tell a Marine, man. Like, you guys all, like, one each the same as far as, like, how you look. Even, like, oh, dude, that was a Marine. Uh, he's, like, 65 years old. We're like, he, he still looks like a Marine. It's something about the culture you guys breed, which is awesome. But let's talk, let's talk air shows, man. How, how is that? What was that like getting spun up to do air shows in F-35? And then what's your experience been so far with it? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Some things are just better together, like party playlists and Friday nights, campfires and ghost stories, peanut butter and chocolate. And Reese's Cups are the perfect combination of creamy peanut butter and delicious milk chocolate. So, when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Buy Reese's today wherever candy is sold. The holidays start here at Kroger with a variety of options to celebrate traditions old and new. You could do a classic herb-roasted turkey or spice it up and make turkey tacos. Serve up a go-to shrimp cocktail or use Simple Truth wild-caught shrimp for your first Cajun risotto. Make creamy mac and cheese or a spinach artichoke fondue from our selection of Murray's cheese. No matter how you shop, Kroger has all the freshest ingredients to embrace all your holiday traditions. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Cool. So um, a little bit of background that I think is important to get out there just to set some context for the Marine Corps F-35B airshow program. Um, previous platforms and current platforms do take part in airshows um, from our helicopters to our Ospreys, um, the Harrier as well. But we had never really had a full-blown like FAA certified aerobatic airshow. Um, at least not in this generation. I can't speak for the far past and different fighter platforms we've had, but in the modern era, we didn't. Um, and there was a a Marine who back in 2018 was like, incredibly, I think, prescient and forward-looking. And it was, he was a test pilot, uh, Lieutenant Colonel um, Champ Guyette. And he was working with like story career, test pilot, done a lot of amazing things. And he was working with the development of 3F and the expanded performance envelope for the F-35, which to give you a little bit of like roping it all together, when I started flying, we we're flying 2B aircraft and we had a 5G limit on the jet. 
because it hadn't been tested. So I learned something that is very different than what the students we're training now learn, but he saw an opportunity. And with 3F coming out and going to all the variants, the Marines were just an early adopter. We were the first to get F-35 to IOC and great. But he saw an opportunity here that Lockheed Martin had developed a, there was a civilian test pilot who had basically developed a profile and wanted to use that as the model for the aerobatic profiles for the DOD F-35. And the Air Force was buying into it. And he was like, Marine Corps should buy into this. Like, this is a great opportunity for relatively low cost. We, we, we can do this and we can be part of that. And so we actually bought into it at the same time that the Air Force did back in around 2018. This profile came out, first debuted at the Paris Air Show. You know, great acclaim, but also as a way to highlight the 3F is like, here's the true envelope of the F-35. Here's what it can do. Because yeah. early, in its early years, as, as we all know, there was a lot of... Uh, it can barely fly. It's got all these issues. You know, it can't even turn. Right? It gets outrated, gets outfought. And there were real limits early on, but he bought into it. So the program was created based upon that test profile. And Lockheed Martin ran simulations and did all kinds of engineering analysis for us to build out what is like a very comprehensive profile, um, showcasing our performance and all the maneuvers that we do. But that ended up resulting in um, demo qual within the F-35 community. And early on, it's kind of a shift in models. Early on, there were only so many shows, other TMSs, type model series, as we call them in the Marine Corps and Navy, only so many shows that those TMSs were doing, because like I kind of alluded to, um, they were individual fleet squadrons picking up shows, right, as able you know, yep. not really directly tasking units, just saying we need to fill these units would apply for it. And so moving over to the model of getting F-35 certified to do it, we also started to do a model that's more similar to the Navy. Whereas um, y'all's demo teams are kind of, I believe, I know I've, uh, I've talked to Bayo with F-35 Alpha and I know she's attached to Hill and that's where she operates out of. Right. Where were you out of? Were you out of Shaw at that time? I was at a Shaw, okay, so the yeah. way, um, yeah, the Air Force does like singletons. I think, and so the civilian test pilot, Billy Flynn, I think so you're referring to, because he flew the show in Paris. He was a Canadian Hornet guy, then Lockheed Martin Block 60, like bringing that online, and then F-35 chief test pilot for Lockheed Martin. But he's been on the show, so listening, people can go back to that. And also he's been on the bro chat. But the way the Air Force does it, yeah, one, four demo teams, yep. F-35, F-22, F-16, a-10, and it's just one pilot for two, or in Bayo's case, like four years. Right place, right time. She just, she nailed it. But we learned out of like uh, mishaps, and especially the Viper, with guys who, we kind of did it like the Navy way back in the day, mm -hmm. where there might be a couple different demo pilots, or you were the demo pilot, and you still were full up in the fighter squadron, doing fighter squadron things every day, and then going to an air show, and we killed one or two guys and realize like, oh, let's just make that their sole job. So, so we've adopted kind of the Navy's model where our fleet replacement squadrons, um, FRSs that do our B courses, they basically are going to be the ones who are the demo program. The demo teams come from them. And it's those pilots who are instructor pilots during their day jobs, go out and do demo. Um, so gotcha. there's, there's pluses and minuses to both. There's, there's two different ways to skin the cat, but at least, Right now, with that program being developed, being bought 
us getting into it and then COVID happening, right? Air shows, like, come on, got kibosh for a hot minute there. Yep. Um, so we had limited opportunities to really go out there and create a team and really participate very much until this year. And this year was the first year that they really kind of turned it on. And we were directed from hire, like, thou shall actually support these and do the demo there. So this is our first year, 2023, where, like, we actually are um, an F-35B demo team. And we have, right now, I'm the only pilot at 501 in Beaufort. Um, but I'm currently training an additional pilot because kind of what you alluded to, um, I have a day job as an instructor pilot. I'm the OIC of a maintenance shop downstairs. Like, I got a lot of jobs. <laughs> so I want to have a second guy so that we roll into seasons from here on out. And we represent the East Coast, have at least two pilots in case things come up. Um, I got sick this year and almost didn't make it to Sun and Fun. So that really helps me to understand why two is better than one. Uh, But on the West Coast, 502, they have two demo pilots right now as well. And so we're going to each operate kind of a way to, with this new thing, to make it to where it works. It fulfills like community relations goals the United States Marine Corps, but it's also not too much of an ask necessarily on the FRSs that we could see this as being something that is both useful, valuable to all parties involved, um, knowing that we're not dedicated, that's all we do. Um, So we did two civilian shows this year. We did Sun and Fun down in Lakeland, Florida, and then we did um, the Beth Jones State Park Air Show, Beth Page Jones Beach Air Show up in New York. And then the West Coast guys out in 502, um, they did the UMA air show and like military air shows don't really count. We're going to do one per coast per year. They'll do two. So they'll own like Yuma Miramar. We'll own Cherry Point and Beaufort. Um, but they have got civilian air shows coming up during the second half of the year. And it's been an interesting experience because, like I said, people went before me to, to create this and to make this a thing. And, and it does exist, but it didn't really have an opportunity to get out there and perform like it needs to. And like, I think it's important for it to, to show our presence. I mean, something that I think Marine Corps TAC air struggles with is that most Americans don't know that the Marine Corps flies jets, like straight up, like in all the commercials, there's always a a quick, like five second bit of like a a Hornet or like an F-35, like doing something. But uh, people, when they think Marine Corps, they don't think jets and, and, that's fine. Like that, that makes sense. The mission of the Marine Corps is the mission of like the infantrymen of the ground side, but being able to go out to these shows, to different places, leave our home station and interact with the public, you know, that that has been very, very rewarding to me on a personal level. And also just on a programmatic level, just showing like people coming up and being like, I didn't, you guys are Marines. Like you guys are fighters. Like what? Like that exposure to me is invaluable just because we're small, right? We're, we're a small force and the air wing is a smaller proportion of that. And I think if we want to really continue to be competitive and get more pilots to be interested in the program and to have like a healthy cadre of folks, like that exposure, as well as just getting out to meet your fellow Americans, is like crucially important. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Most people don't get, get to be that close to anyone in the DOD, let alone get up close to, you know, multi, million dollar fighter jet and demo is a weird beast too. Like you said, like not being too taxing on the FRS. I was fortunate that I had three jets 
that were dedicated to demo. And the reason they did that is because, you know, the Viper are always doing configuration changes. So just to have three clean jets, and these are the ones, they're not going to rack up a ton of hours. So ones maybe they're trying to manage to not hit the 500-hour phase and have to cycle them in. You know, there's some maintenance management that's going into that. But having the D model, because I would bring that down in the off-season and put people through the demo profile, but I made a specific effort to try and fly as many colonels and generals who were in the in the chain to expose them. At least the Air Force, like most GOs who are flying, right, can there was probably an air show they went to as a kid that inspired them. So even though they're managing all these pieces of the puzzle and limited resources, most of them still say, like, you know, I believe, and they know there's, like, an importance of, like, going out there and doing air shows because – it's funneling the pipeline of future pilots and airmen. But you're still a resource drain. Like, you're a huge resource drain. And then when you break a jet somewhere, like, it's not your demo team maintainers. that are, Like, maybe you're leaving one or two behind, but you're probably requiring a truck bed full of equipment that someone had to pick off the shelves, parts, pull it from jets, load it, ship it with a, a MRT, a maintenance response team, uh, so like you, hey, you're you're a burden <laughs> and a resource drain when it comes to doing this demo stuff. But I do think it's important, as you just alluded to, going out there and actually interacting with your fellow Americans, letting them get up close and see what their tax tax dollars are, you know, paying for at least a part of them. You know, so yep, yeah, that's good stuff. It's uh, about the balancing act that you are you yeah sorry. Do you have any more? So you you're done with air shows minus uh, Cherry Point. Because Buford already happened this year. Yeah, right? yeah, we did. We did Sun and Fun, Buford, and then we did New York. Um, yeah. Okay. So the East Coast is done for this season. Um, our West Coast folks still have a Kansas City Air Show coming up in August, and then they'll be doing San Francisco Fleet Week uh, later on in the fall. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. You need to go to West Coast. You need, you need... As a <laughs> that's a fun one. As a West Coast guy myself, it uh, kind of breaks my heart yeah. that. They're yeah. doing that, but uh, East Coast is great too. Uh, you know, yeah, that's great. It's all good. You need to, so you need to. This is where you need to work Miami and then San Francisco because those two, it's like Grand Theft Auto, like where you're like just raging around the Golden Gate Bridge or ripping down the government cut in Miami. It's like this is this should be illegal, <laughs> and in fact, most days of the week it is illegal unless you have a a waiver. So there you that's go. That's it. One 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 funny thing about the demo is um, because obviously I did it in Buford and you know F thirty five base. Um, for F-35B pilots, the first time you hover is pretty awe-inspiring. It's interesting. You're like, wow, this 33,000-pound vehicle is just floating on a pin. Um, but after that, it becomes normalized, and it becomes benign, and no one cares about it. And the, the tail end of our demo, <laughs> folks haven't seen it, we come in for our delayed hover. We descend, face the crowd, face back the runway, and then we'll do a, a pirouette. So we'll do a a 360 degree spin while translating aft down the runway. And um, other 35B guys are like, yeah, whatever. Like, cool. I can hover too, bro. Like, don't really care. But yeah. honestly, for being out there with the civilians, I tell everyone, I was like, look, everything we do up top, that's the Alpha does that. And the Alpha has nine Gs. So the Alpha is probably doing it a little bit better. Uh, but the hovering, I was like, that's the thing that no other platform barring the Harrier can do. And even the Harrier doesn't do a pirouette. So it's funny. The thing that like the pilots themselves don't really find is very interesting is the thing that like I always get the most feedback from from civilians. Because they're like, I, they I saw a jet hover. They're like, that's insane. And my pilots are like, yeah, that wasn't that cool, man. 
but so it goes. Yeah, I see it. I see it hovering. All I, all I see is the canopy bow when I see you hovering <laughs> out there, you know? Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but people love it. They love Dude, to see a plane hover. It's, it's something about it's it. It's that thing that I'm sure you know, and the other pilots who've been on know, it's like, you gotta, you always gotta remind yourself of what it is we get the opportunity to do. Cause if you're not careful, yeah. it, you take it for granted, right? You, you, you just, you're going to fly again, going to go do another mission. And like, you always have to, I think, remind yourself a buddy of mine is the one who told me, I didn't come up with it on my, on my own, but he's like, you just can't forget that there's plenty of folks out there who would like do anything, pay any amount of money to, to have the opportunity to do what we're fortunate enough to do for like a single day. And I try to instill that in the students as well. And just be like, never, never take it for granted, you know, never, never lose sight of what you can may consider mundane or every day to actually be something that is very, very few people get the opportunity to do. That's what I mean. Part of the reason doing this podcast is that aspect. And it's surprising. Like when you ask like a buddy, like, Hey, you want to do the podcast? Like, I don't have anything to say. I'm like, dude, like 99% of the people will never even come close to a jet or hear anything like what you take for granted, like just going to the airspace and some shenanigans going to the airspace or just go, you know, just something so benign. That's just putting on your pants to go to work. Um, most people never come close to that. So it is, that's good. That's a good perspective. Tying into that as we kind of wrap up here, 15, 16 year old Bob walking down the street. Is there any advice you'd give to him? See, it's the advice that I gave this season. I'll continue to give. Um, if you have goals, and they don't even have to be aviation related, but I can speak to that piece. Um, whatever your goals are, you have to ask yourself if you truly want to do that. Like you have to ask yourself that first. And I've talked people out of plenty of things, believe it or not, because I think that if you don't come at it with the right perspective and with the right amount of dedication, then it probably won't work out for you. If you've made the choice to do something, be it becoming a fighter pilot or choosing any other endeavor, um, you have to then be dedicated and you have to be willing to, to make the hard choices because as we both talked about today, I've known plenty of people who for one reason or another had the right intentions, put in max effort and it still didn't happen. So the next piece is be laser focused on what it is you want to do, be dedicated to what it is you want to achieve and then be patient because if young if i was able to tell young me that, hey man you'll get there but you're not going to be in the fleet until you're 28 years old that would have been i would have been a tough pill to swallow like i would have been like i thought it would happen a lot sooner um the thing is the road is winding and twisting and sometimes a lot longer than you think but just kind of never giving up on that and always remembering that if that's truly what you want to do to stay focused and if it seems like a door is closing, realize that there's probably other doorways to continue down that path that you may not even know about. Like, don't let those setbacks dishearten you. Um, kind of a, there's, where there's a will, there's a way in a big sense would be what I tell myself. 100%. Dude, Bob, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for joining me the podcast. And uh, thanks for just, yeah, just sharing a little bit of your story, man. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me here, Ray. It's been great. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.